Well, good morning. My name's Taylor Reevely. I'm one of the worship leaders here, and usually I have a guitar, and this morning I get the privilege of talking to you about what happens before the guitar is ever picked up. And what I'm going to say next has nothing to do with that. That's just where the whole morning is going. But what I'm going to say next is that I don't know where you go when the YouTube black hole sucks you in, but where I go is to three places. Three places just captivate my attention like n- no other. The first is, is magic. I, I think I have watched all of the Penn & Teller videos that are on YouTube. And one of the things that amazed me recently was I, I came across a video where Penn & Teller are describing in detail each step of the magic trick. It's the classic balls and cups trick. And then to top it off, they use clear cups. So you would think that you can figure out this mystery. And I was baffled because I missed, I missed it. Astounded at the, the knowledge of the magician that extends far beyond me. The second place I go uh, after I look at all the magic videos on YouTube is I go to the, the food videos on YouTube, the cooking videos. And I'm just interested in cooking and how the flavors play together and I watched a show recently where there were a couple chefs and they told you all the ingredients that they were going to use. They even read the recipe of how they were going to prepare the food. And I saw a dish at the end of that show that astounded me. There is no way that if you gave me those ingredients in those directions that the plate would look like that, let alone smell like I can only imagine or taste like I can only imagine it tasted. And I marveled at the the ingenuity of these master chefs. And then the third place that I spiral in my YouTube black hole is into the DIY channels. We recently remodeled a, a little camper trailer and I had to look at these videos, but then I found myself watching way more DIY than I ever cared to know or apply. And despite listing all the tools you need, despite listing all of the steps, Somehow the project on the screen turns out way better than the project at home every time. It is terribly vexing. And the mystery and the knowledge of the magician and the chef and the DIY sensei is such that even when the mystery is laid bare in front of you, you're astoundedly vexed and marvel at the knowledge of the magician, the chef, or the DIY sensei. The analogies surely break down, but I would say so it is with God. God reveals himself, his plan, his ways, his mysteries. And it ought to produce in us in astounded vexation that marvels at the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And that is, in a sense, kind of the, I think, the big idea of our conclusion to Romans 11, that theology, the study of God, the study of God as He's revealed Himself, ought to produce doxology, this astounded vexation that marvels at who God is and what He's done. Before I ask you to turn in your Bible, so I want to ask you a question. Why do you read your Bible? How do you, how do you read your Bible? 
what's the, what's the goal in it? Is it to get smarter or to learn more about God or maybe to learn how we are now to live as people of God? Those are our noble pursuits, but I want to I present an axiom for us to consider this morning as we consider the mysteries of God. I believe that we can fully know God, but we cannot know Him fully. I believe we can fully know God as He has revealed Himself. All that He has made known can be known, but we cannot know Him fully. He has not revealed all of Himself that there is. This is, this is a unique idea to Christianity, um, that God has revealed Himself and makes Himself known. He does so through creation. He does so in our hearts as our conscience speaks to us. He does so in the incarnation where God Himself takes on flesh and dwells among us. He does so through His Word. He does so through His Holy Spirit who illumines the Scriptures to us that we might understand. All of that which God has revealed, can be fully, rightly, wholly known. But we cannot know Him fully. And this is, a, this is a mystery that's experienced by every human, of every educational level, of every rational ability, of every IQ. God can be fully known to the degree that He has revealed Himself, but He cannot be known fully. And so if you open the Bible attempting to know God, do it. It's noble pursuit. But you, you're presented with a dilemma from the very beginning. My aim is to know God, but I cannot know Him fully. So I think there are, are two options. Either, and these are two tendencies, either you can just say, forget it, I'm not going to engage that at all. It's not worth it. It's impossible to know Him fully, and so I'm just going to not touch theology. I'm not going to pick up my Bible. And the other option is to consider that perhaps God's revelation of Himself is for something more than merely knowledge. Perhaps as God reveals Himself, His goal is not merely to make you smarter, but to do something else in your heart and in your life through His Word revealed. When we arrive at the end of our rationality, puzzled and perplexed at the mysteries of God, we are invited to delight in Him, to delight in the mystery of We sometimes call that delight worship, which is what we do together as we sing. It's what we do together as we live lives that worship this God. We might call it doxology, that we would praise God. And that's a very different goal than we might expect. We might expect to become confused or frustrated, perhaps even denying a God that cannot be known fully. Whereas worship and awe at this God is its intended response. Frankly, this is why we begin our gatherings with a call to worship. We come together on Sunday morning, and the first thing we start with is not worship. 
The first thing we start with is this revelation about who God is and what he has done. As revealed in his scripture, he has the first word. And our worship together is our response to who he is. Some of you are are engineers, and I know you may be thinking, if the goal of this then is that we would worship God, delight in him, there must be a way to short circuit that process. There's got to be a way. And I think that's antithetical to the idea of Scripture, that knowing God and the process of learning and knowing God is intrinsic to that result of a life of worship. You will arrive at worship. You ought to arrive at worship as you seek to know God. And I think this idea is precisely where the Apostle Paul lands at his conclusion to Romans 11. Would you turn there with me to Romans chapter 11, that this theology that he's been developing produces nothing but doxology at the end of Romans 11. Would you look with me at verse 33 through 36? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And so in the, in the book of Romans, this pattern emerges that theology produces doxology. And if you maybe reflect on the last several months that we've spent studying Romans 9 through 11 particularly, yes, this is a conclusion to Romans 1 through 11, but specifically this mystery that God chooses some, that he grafts some in, that he makes all things work according to his purposes is a mystery. Look at verse 25, a few verses earlier of Romans 11. Paul is making this theological mystery very plain. He's using clear cups and he's telling you every step. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. Notice the understanding. There's a rational knowledge here. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The cups are clear. Do you see what's happening? As you understand who God is and the way He is working in the world? And He'll explain it further. Look at verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. The list of the ingredients and the recipe are right in front of you. Do do you see it and do you get it? The The whole time we've been studying Romans 9 through 11, there have been so many but what abouts that have come up. But what about... But what about this remnant of Israel? But what about 
election. But what about human responsibility in responding to election? But what about, and all of these questions have come up as a mystery, and perhaps you just think, ah, but I still don't understand this or that. And I think here at the end of Romans 11, that's the point. Throughout Romans so far, week after week, God has been revealed to be in a different category than us. Over and above. Beyond beyond knowledge, beyond wisdom, beyond understanding. So this, this theology, this study of God in Romans has produced... Uh, Yes, some uh, wrinkled faces. And at the same time, ought to produce doxology. Look here with me a little bit closer at Romans 11, 33 through 36. Verse 33 contains three exclamations. And verses 34 contain three questions that are evidence that the exclamations are appropriate. And then verse 36 contains three declarations. And finally, the only viable conclusion. This first exclamation, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There's no exclamation point in the Greek language. Instead, exclamations are introduced by a word at the beginning of a sentence. And that word is, oh, Oh the, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. This is though Paul can, can hardly contain his, this excitement anymore. It's been simmering at the surface the whole time he's been explaining the theological mysteries of how God works in the world, and now it's spilling over. He uses here in verse 33 a couple metaphors to explain this exclamation. He, he uses the, the metaphor of depth. And what comes to mind when I picture something that is deep is I, I think of a well. And I just read a book about a well that was drilled and for years the drilling went on to find water. Something that is infinitely deep in this case. And the second metaphor is that of riches. This idea that the well is full of treasure the depth of the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. They're staggering. They know no limit. There is no upper bounds on the knowledge and wisdom of God. The second exclamation is like it. How unsearchable are his judgments. And what we've seen now through Romans 9 through 11 is that God has, we've seen, laid bare God's judgments. He chose Jacob over Esau. Why? He chose Israel over the nations, but then he calls the nations. And then he has a promise yet for Israel. His judgments, unsearchable. However, unlike a corrupt judge, whose motives are plain, a corrupt judgment is is almost always because the judge wants money or power. And the factors are plain. 
well, I need money and I need power. Unlike an ju- unjust judge, the just judge, the, the factors at play in the mind of a just judge are beyond, are beyond comprehension. What does he see in the, in, in the evidence here that would present such a judgment? Because we look at the same factors, perhaps, and arrive at a different conclusion, which leads me to say with Paul how unsearchable are his judgments. He sees things that I don't see. He understands things I don't understand. He knows things I, I can't know. And he acts accordingly. This third exclamation, then, is like the first two. How inscrutable his ways. And I had to look that word up. It means not readily investigated, interpreted, or understood. And the synonym is mysterious. How mysterious are his ways. In, in biblical Greek, those words for unsearchable and inscrutable are only used elsewhere in the Old Testament. They're not used again in the New Testament. And in those places is the characteristically Jewish talk of this axiomatic assumption that God acts justly as creator and covenant Lord. That he does what is right, even when it is hard to understand. And this is an idea that the prophet Isaiah declares in Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So even though the mystery has been revealed, in verse 25, Paul recognizes that there is far, far more to God's purposes and actions than the human mind could ever comprehend. And he supports these exclamations now with three questions, and they're rhetorical in nature. He begins in verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? I read those together because they're a direct quotation from Isaiah 40, which says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Isaiah is an interesting book to quote at this point. Having summed the mystery of the Israel election, the Gentile way in and Israel's remnant being saved. Because Isaiah the prophet is looking ahead at this same mystery that Paul is looking backwards on. In Isaiah's writing, he foretells of a time when Israel, God's chosen people, would be cut off and sent into exile. But then he begins, Isaiah chapter 40, by saying, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And he promises that one would come to prepare the way of the Lord to work this plan. That has happened by Paul's time, as John the Baptist has come. And in verses 10 through 11, which Christian read earlier, Isaiah announces that God will come again to Israel. 
And He will tend them and gather them and carry them and lead them once again. Isaiah foretells that a remnant will be saved. Isaiah foretells that the Gentiles, the foreigners, will have a place in this people of God. And he clearly foretells the means by which God will work this plan. In Emmanuel, God with us, and the suffering servant, who is Jesus. And it's at this, at this announcement that God is coming to Israel that we find verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah 40. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who could have come up with the plan like this? If we were to consider consider the well that is full of treasure, pictured in verse 33, we might be able to say that Anyone who walks up to the edge of the well can see the treasure. There's treasure in this well. And a conclusion must be made that something underneath that treasure is supporting the treasure at the top of the well because treasure would sink in water, so it's not water. And what both Isaiah and Paul are saying here is limitless treasure is upholding the sliver of treasure you can see at the top. The well is full of treasure upon treasure upon treasure. So you look in and who has known all the treasure that is in the well? Who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? The third question is now in verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? As though this well that is full of treasure, uh, you walk up to it and throw a penny in, like a wishing well, you know. Your penny has not contributed at all to the sum value contained in the well. It is this question that Paul uh, quotes another Old Testament guy, Job. Job is another interesting guy to quote at this point. Because he is personally wrestling with the same questions that now Jews and Gentiles and we as readers are wrestling with about the mysteries of God. Why does he do the things that he does? God in the book of Job calls Job to account. And at the conclusion of three chapters of face-melting questioning, he reminds Job, who has first given to me? that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Does God have deficiencies such that he needs anything? Does God have debt such that he owes anyone? No. The, the obvious answer to these rhetorical questions, no way in some respect, nips this idea of legalistic Jewish loyalty as though our loyalty to you will somehow earn for us what you have promised. It nips it in the bud because grace has preceded. Grace has paved the way entirely for you to access salvation with God. God owes salvation to nobody and yet He offers it freely 
to everybody. So who has known his mind? Or who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he should be repaid? And now verse 36 contains three responsive declarations. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All along, God is the giver. All along, it has been grace upon grace. All along, God has been sustaining. God has been working the plan. It is through Him. And all along, God has been achieving something far bigger than our minds can comprehend, namely His renown in the universe. This little triad from him and through him and to him are all things is not some tack on, um, put a pin in it kind of conclusion to Paul's theology, his understanding about who God is and what he's done. It really is beginning to approach the heart of his theology. Would you turn with me over a couple pages to the book of Colossians chapter 1, where you will find these, these phrases from him, through him, to him mentioned again. Until this point in Romans 11, Paul's really been describing um, God as the covenant Lord of Israel. These phrases, however, invoke another dimension of this mystery that he is speaking of Christ simultaneously. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15. describes the mystery in, of how God has, is working this plan. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him... All things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And so it happens that Paul is making these declarations, yes, about the covenant Lord of Israel who can be known fully but not fully, or not, he can be fully known but not known fully, and yet he makes the same statements about Jesus who happens to be the image of the invisible God. The one who reveals God most clearly to us. And so in the mind of Paul, no other conclusion can be made except to Him be glory forever. Amen. To Him be glory forever. Amen. 
all that Paul has written to this point is crescendoing to this grand doxology. The mystery of the gospel, the mystery of mercy, the mystery that Jew and Gentiles both are grafted into the same tree as the people of God, reconciled to God, evokes certainly a lot of questions, but nothing but wonder at the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. It is amazing. I sometimes entertain the question, how would I have done this? And it is a pretty dumb question. How would I have seen calling a people, saving them, but yet saving the world, that all of my promises might be kept? How would I have done that? It's amazing who is known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor. And so that's the conclusion to Romans 11. But what's happened, I think, is that this section now in the book of Romans has created in some sense a principle of how we are to understand some of these big questions about who God is. The mystery, the theology ought to produce doxology. And if, you're, if you turn there a moment ago to Colossians chapter 1, you were introduced to the mystery within the mystery. Namely, this mystery of the Incarnation, which we celebrate at Advent. So let's apply now. Let's take a pass at applying these principles that the theology of the Incarnation, what it is, how it works, all that's been revealed about it is designed, not that we have presence under the tree or we even say Jesus is the reason for the season, but is to the great glory of God. In Colossians 1, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. John 1.1 is another another key place where you can um, read of the incarnation. And John begins his gospel... It's mysterious in itself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And this Word, he says in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word incarnation is used to describe this mystery. And it's it's not mentioned in the Bible as a word, but it's derived in 13th century Latin for incarnatio, in the flesh. Specifically referred to Jesus as God in the flesh. Yes, the same God who created all things. The same God who called Israel to be his people. The same God who Israel rejected was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, became flesh and dwelt among us. This God-man was filled with the Holy Spirit. He illustrated a new way to be human, inaugurated a new kingdom, died on a cross and rose again so that all who believe in him, Jew and Gentile now, without distinction, might find life in him. 
And this is the mystery within the mystery. So, in some sense, that's what the incarnation is. And yet, in another sense, it is all mystery. How could it be that God the Father and God the Son share the same substance? They are one and the same. How could it be that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time? Philippians 2 describes the incarnation saying that Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant and being found in human likeness. What did he empty himself of if he's fully God? And I haven't mentioned the virgin birth that this plan had to happen through a virgin, Mary. Explain that one to me. Those are some of the mysteries, not to mention some of the intrigue of the Incarnation, such as why would Jesus set aside his rights as God? Why would God form this plan? Why would Jesus submit to God the Father in this way? How did Jesus take on human flesh? In what manner? What did it look like for him to be fully God and fully man, maintaining divinity while yet humanity? We celebrate this at Christmas. So we've pressed some, okay, we're we're practicing this theology-producing doxology thing. We've pressed some into the theology surrounding the incarnation. And what are we left with? We're not left with a, a baby in the manger. And we're not left with Jesus is the reason for the season. And we're not left with Santa Claus. We're left with nothing but to praise God at His wisdom and knowledge in working this plan. Left with nothing but to praise God at the gift that He has given that I could never repay. Jesus must be both fully God in order to offer Himself as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God against sinful humanity, to be God, fulfilling His covenant come to rescue His people. Emmanuel has come. Praise God. And at the same time, Jesus must be fully human in order to die the death that humans deserve to inaugurate a new and better way to be human and to mediate between God and man. The Messiah has come. Praise God. Fully God as Emmanuel, fully human as Messiah, He has come to save us. And I want to point out that I I mentioned Philippians 2. Paul points at the goal of of this incarnation in Philippians 2. The goal of the mystery that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or as he says elsewhere in Romans 11, Oh, 
the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This grand conclusion at the end of Romans 11, I believe is one of great glory and at the same time great news. Because all of us have these questions. All of us are wrestling with who God is and what he's up to. Some of us are waiting to have those questions answered by God before we decide to love and trust him. Some of us are wrestling with the circumstances of our life, questioning why God does what he does and why he allows what he allows. Some of us are frustrated with God, even by the difficulty of theology, of studying Him, of knowing Him. Some of us, uh, wrestling with these questions, just scoff at theology. We're functionally agnostic. Maybe there is a God, but we can't know Him, so what's the point anyways? Some of us divide ourselves from people who have different answers to these big questions than we have come up with. But some of us have chosen to press in to the mystery, asking the difficult questions, resting in the tension, trusting God in the midst of it and praising God for it. And I think that's what the mystery is designed to produce. And so the great glory is that God is not like us. He's doing a million things when we see but one. Praise God. And the great news is that God is yet with us. He knows you. In His infinite, limitless knowledge, He knows you. And He cares about you. And He hears your questions. And He invites you to trust Him because He is yet very near. So my encouragement to you would be to press in to these questions. Press in. Take another pass at Romans 9-11 through 11 and press in that you might seek to know God and so that your knowledge doesn't terminate upon itself but instead produces in you delight and worship at who God is. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we are, we are speechless when we consider your wisdom and your plan that you have worked from before time began to reconcile a people to yourself and that you've invited us, that you have made that offer possible 
through the work of your Son. God, would you give us grace as we press into the mystery? Would you show yourself to us? Spirit, make known to us the Word of God as we seek to know Him. We rejoice that you are not far, but that you have revealed yourself. And we will delight in you. We will choose to worship you and live a life of doxology as we get to know you. Would you help us to that end? In your name, amen.